Is your cloud bill out of control? Cloud Zero is building a platform that will let you analyze your cloud investment faster than ever before. You'll get accurate, granular visibility into your total cloud spend without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. Cloud Zero is how cloud-driven companies gain more financial control and predictability by driving immediate and ongoing savings. You can answer questions like, how can I save 20% of my cloud bill right now? Who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? Join companies like Rapid7, Drift, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash cloudcast to get started today. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash cloudcast to get started today. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. September is about two-thirds of the way done. It is starting to get cool. The leaves are starting to change. Fall is is here. We're officially into fall. Hope everybody's doing well. Another Sunday Perspective show. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting thing that happens in the VC community. Uh, the VC community is it's an interesting place. Um, you know, there are, um, you know, objectionably, you know, a lot of smart people. Um, there are a number of people who have made a lot of money. Um, it is a place where a lot of money collects because um, people are fascinated by the idea of, you know, tech overall has been a, uh, let's say it's generally been a good place to to invest. Uh, the, the tech industry as a whole has tended to outpace um, other industries at times, not not all the time. I mean, uh, banking has done well, energy has done well, um, you know, real estate has done well. Um, but I think people are, are generally fascinated with tech because, you know, it's not a, you know, 30% growth industry. It's not a, you know, 20% growth industry. It has these, you know, kind of flashes of, you know, 100, 200, 500, 10,000% growth, right? Um, you know, and we see some of the largest companies in the world, whether it's Google or Apple or face, you know, Meta or Amazon or others <clears throat> are generally, generally tech companies while they do other things, advertising and retail and, and uh, you know, consumer electronics and whatever they do. Um, but what's interesting about the the VC community is, you know, they they are they have certain communication patterns that are sort of interesting. Um, they love to talk about uh, when they, you know, are well all the time. They want to talk about being the smartest people in the room, but they love to tell you when you know they identified something uh, before anybody else. Right. Um, they love to tell you when one of their investments did terribly well. They love to sort of crow about that. And, and that's not unusual. Everybody likes to, to do that to a certain extent. And then they the other way they sort of communicate is they love to tell you when uh, they think they are being wronged. They think that uh, something is going wrong uh, in the industry that while they don't explicitly come out and say it, you know, to a certain extent affects them. And. You know, we've seen this, uh, you know, one of the, the more famous ones was um, Andreessen Horowitz or A16Zs. Uh, Martin, Martin Casado came out um, a couple of years ago and said, yep, everybody is repatriating um, all of their workloads. Uh, you know, the cloud providers are way too expensive. Um, everybody is repatriating their their workloads back into the data center once they, they figure out in the cloud what happens. And, 
you know, and then they they sort of had to do a follow up that Martin didn't really want to put his name on anymore, in which he he sort of claimed, well, you know, there was a few of those, but that was one of my other colleagues that figured that out. But in essence, it was it was them saying, um, so much of the money that we are giving to our our VC companies, our startup companies, is going towards the cloud providers, and. It's interesting, and I'm going to use that as a, a point in time, and we did a show about this a while ago, so I won't go to it in depth. I'll, I'll point to some things. But it's always interesting. Um, you sort of know there's a tell when they start talking about how much money is being spent in places that aren't uh, you know, going to directly impact them being able to, to return in revenues. And it's been a couple of years since we've seen one of these, uh, but I saw one this week, uh, you know, kind of a one of these articles that was written, uh, written by Sequoia. And we're going to dive into it after the break, but essentially it was, uh-oh, uh, I'm raising a red flag. Um, our business model is potentially under threat once again, and we are very concerned about it, and we hope the rest of you will help us figure it out. So I'm going to tease that a little bit. We're going to dive into it after the break as to what uh, Sequoia was highlighting and how it's got some interesting significance historically uh, in terms of sort of repeating history, repeating itself as to what we might have seen back in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s that some of you may have been around for. Some of you may be completely new to this, uh, but we're going to kind of draw some parallels as to what uh, Sequoia is is red flagging Um whether they uh, want you to know they're doing that or not, but uh, we'll get into that after the break. Today's episode of the Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs into one tightly integrated platform. Datadog APM empowers developer teams to identify anomalies, resolve issues, and improve application performance. Begin collecting stack traces, visualizing them as flame graphs, organizing them into profile types such as CPU, I.O., and more. Teams can search for specific profiles, correlate them with distributed traces, and identify slow or underperforming code for analysis and optimization. Plus, with Datadog APM Live Search, you can perform searches across the full stream of ingested traces generated by your application over the last 15 minutes. Try Datadog APM free with a 14-day trial, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadog.com APM cloudcast to get started. That's datadog.com slash APM dash cloudcast. This episode is supported by the AWS Insiders podcast. AWS Insiders is a fast-paced, entertaining, and insightful look behind the scenes of AWS and cloud computing. I'm a subscriber to AWS Insiders, and I love Rahul and Hillary's practical analysis and interviews. As an F1 racing fan, the recent episode on how AWS and F1 partnered together to make the races more exciting was especially entertaining. Search for AWS Insiders in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to AWS Insiders for their support. And we're back. And as I sort of teased at the top of the show, uh, I want to dive a little bit into an article that was written by Sequoia, uh, Sequoia, uh, one of the largest, most well-known, successful venture capital firms. It's called AI's $200 billion question. And I promise this show isn't going to be exclusive about AI. I know I've mentioned a couple times that Aaron and I are trying to find the right balance between sort of this uh, you know, huge boom or huge interest in AI recently and not trying to make this show entirely about AI because there are, we just looked on the uh, Apple uh, top 200 podcasts, there are 47 
AI shows out there in the top 200 right now. So we, you know, there, there's plenty of AI stuff out there. If that's what you want, we're trying to look at it from a slightly different perspective. But um, what I want to dive into is I want to provide a little bit of historical context. And, and for me, this is sort of one of the more fun Sunday perspectives we get to do is to, you know, kind of see some historical patterns repeating themselves and then try and figure out if, you know, what happened in the past has any chance of repeating itself again this time. So let me provide a little bit of context. If you went back to uh, about 1996, 97, 98, you had this huge build out of, and this is going to sound so weird um, because we are now, what, 20, let's call it 25 years ahead of time. But we were basically seeing this gigantic build out in the sort of mid 90s uh, through the end of the 90s of basically the internet, right? So so let's put this into context. Um the browser, the web browser came along, people were able to build their own website, and a whole bunch of information was now being put out on the internet from newspapers to sports scores to a little bit of, of media. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of bandwidth back then. You know, we were still dealing with modems and very slow speed ISDN and other. I mean, kids, let me put this into perspective for you like being able to get. 56 kilobytes per second or 128 kilobytes per second was fast for the internet. <clears throat> so again, we've, we've come a long way to you getting, uh, you know, a gigabit fiber to your home in roughly 25 years. So again, you know, kind of keep that in mind, but the internet was, was starting to take off. Um, all of this information was starting to be put online, everything from, you know, people's uh, you know, store catalog to people's weird shoe fetishes to all sorts of stuff was being put out there. There was this sort of, you know, buildup that people were starting to figure out, okay, this is going to be, the internet is going to now be the new marketplace. It's, you know, people were kind of predicting the future. We were talking about um, things like words are being thrown around the information superhighway, uh, you know, being thrown around by Mr. Bill Gates and uh, Vice President Al Gore at the time. And people were talking about um, how incredibly weird it was going to be when we have, you know, 500 channels of, of television or in essence, you know, 500 channels of media. And, you know, to a certain extent, we've gotten there. Uh, we have, uh, you know, if you, if you buy any cable bundle, there are, you know, hundreds of channels between all the different things, but also <clears throat> everybody has their own channel uh, through things like YouTube and TikTok and others. So it's not really at 500 channels. It's probably at 500 million channels. But anyways, we went through this whole period of people trying to work through in their mind this idea that if we're now all interconnected and the way that we get interconnected is simply to open up your computer, open up your laptop at the time. Again, cell phones didn't have any sort of real internet communication. You're going to fire that up. There's going to be a little piece of software on your computer called a browser, and uh, you're going to type in some strange, weird thing that's called a URL, and you're going to be able to find all this information. And, you know, over time, you're going to be able to buy things on the internet and communicate with people over the internet and all this sort of stuff. And so as a result of that, <clears throat> people started realizing, well, if that's going to be the way of the world, if that's going to be the new backbone of commerce in the world, that's going to be the new communication vehicle, all these sort of things, we better build really robust networks because the idea that people are going to put up with the slowness of a modem or the slowness of, you know, 128 or 200 kilobits per second uh, is, is just not sustainable, right? We're going to need, we're going to need a lot of, 
we're going to need a lot of bandwidth and we're going to need a lot of networks. Um, and again, this was this was before you could sit on your couch with wireless uh, at your home. Like that just wasn't even a thing either. Like you had to you know, pull a cable all over your home. Anyways, long story short, the reason I bring all this up is that at the time, um, the there was a lot of companies who figured out, um, just as they did in the gold rush in the United States and the West Coast back in the 1800s, um, you know, the 1840s or 1850s, um, while there was going to be gold in, you know, finding gold, there was also going to be lots of money made in pickaxes and Levi's and, you know, the infrastructure to allow the people that were going to go after this gold mine of possibilities. There was going to be tons of money in the people that built out the infrastructure for this. And at the time, the people who were building that infrastructure uh, were telephone companies, uh, cable companies, cable television companies, and railroads, right? So you, because essentially it was, we are going to pull fiber optic cable, um, high bandwidth fiber optic cable all over the countryside, all over the country. And this was not just in the United States, but it was kind of all over the place. Um, and so the people that were driving this, that were that were pushing this, were primarily telephone companies, cable companies, and railroad companies because they owned the right-of-ways already. They owned all these land that crisscrossed different countries, um, and they were able to basically lay down fiber optic cable in the same places they already owned uh, conduits and owned land and so forth. And you also had uh, a few other companies who you know, essentially became these um, interconnect providers. Think of them as sort of like what we call internet service providers today, but they were, they were going to be some combination of, you know, owners of the fiber, which was an extremely expensive uh, capital outlay resource. And then they were going to um, not necessarily be like the internet service providers, but they were going to be the internet sort of bandwidth providers, backbone providers, if you will. And so I put a link in the show notes to um, an article that was written back in 2003-2004-ish um, sort of time frame. And I, and I point that out because this, this boom started uh, in the sort of mid to late 90s. So, you know, I would say 1997, 98, 99, it started to really, really heat up. By 2000, it was, uh, it was on fire. I mean, it was, it was peak internet boom right um and you'll you'll hear at times the internet bust or the dot com bust so you have this combination at the time of people really excited about a technology this new technology this thing that was going to do amazing things that we could just you know we could just sit there and ponder and figure out what was possible and there really was nothing that you couldn't think of that wasn't possible people were like this could happen and that could happen and then you had the realization that like in order to get there there's going to be a significant multiple orders of magnitude build out that's going to be needed from a technology infrastructure perspective in order to make this happen. At the time, it was fiber optic cable. And then the most important thing was you had people, very ambitious people who said, I will be the builder of the business, the businesses, the, in essence, applications that are going to become uh, the thing that finds the gold in the, you know, finds the gold in them hills, if you will. So this was uh, you know, the golden age of what we called dot coms, because again, at the time, the concept of something called blah, 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 dot com didn't exist. And so, you know, if you were Amazon.com or you were 
you know, whatever.com, uh, Disney.com, um, you know, that was, that was a thing. So anyways, you started having, um, people building business models of, you know, how are we going to utilize the internet? And so this is where you hear about, uh, web MD, you know, like web.com or md.com or pets.com or any of these things that were in essence, like I'm going to disrupt the food, the dog food industry. I'm going to disrupt the medical industry. I'm going to disrupt the delivery industry and a whole bunch of other things that, you know, were very, very interesting concepts to think about concepts to kind of figure out, uh, but also completely new business models, right? People really didn't know what the business models look like. Um, they were sort of fictitious, if you will, but fictitious only in the way that, you know, people had never done anything like this over the internet. Like how would I, you know, if I ordered something, how would I transact a credit card transaction? How would I get it delivered? How would I track it? How do I trust this website? All sorts of stuff like that. You know, where do I, uh, where do I, you know, if I'm selling goods over the internet, where do I store those goods, right? Do I still have to have warehouses? Do I still have to have trucks? And again, you know, this goes way back before all the stuff that people like Amazon eventually figured out how to do aggregation and fulfillment and, and all, you know, being able to have stuff like Shopify or Stripe or, you know, sort of these services that got, you know, came in and were specific to individual things. We didn't learn all that at the beginning. We made the mistake of people building these very <clears throat> vertical stacks to try and solve the problem. So anyways, the reason I, I start with that uh, as the lead in to this Sequoia uh, AI's $200 billion question is what happened in that first sort of wave of the internet, right? So again, let's let's put the building blocks in place. Uh, new technology comes along that seems incredibly fascinating and all of a sudden has a user interface to it. And it seems like it's at the fingertips of almost everybody, right? That's that's the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens is this realization that in order for the potential of this to come along, there is going to be a have to be a massive, massive build out of the infrastructure uh, in order to be able to sustain this. At the time, it was bandwidth infrastructure. And then the third piece was a whole bunch of people who were you know, ambitious and said, I'm going to figure out how to deliver a brand new capability, something that's never been done before. Um, but I'm not, exact, not exactly sure how the business model of that's going to work. Fast forward to about 2003, 2004, 2005, and you had tons and tons of what we, well, we, we had what we called the, the, dot, the dot bomb or the dot com bubble burst or the dot bomb uh, happened. So by 2001, 2002, <clears throat> uh, a lot of these companies who had taken hundreds of millions of dollars in in VC funding essentially failed. And the moral of the story, um, again, business models, uh, you know, will always sort of catch up to you. But the reason I bring all this up was that back then, <clears throat> if you talk to any VC and you said, and Aaron and I brought this up on the show and it may not have always made sense when we brought it up before. But back in those days, if you went to a VC, let's say you were, you know, pets.com. You were, you know, coolnewidea.com. You went to a venture capitalist and you said, in my first round, A, A round, like early, early round, not like C round, D round, like we have today, early round. And you said, I want to start this company. Here's what I want to do. We're going to scale it to internet scale, whatever internet scale means at the time. And I'm going to need to do this. You would ask for 50, 60, 70, 80, $100 million in your earliest round, not, not in a 
you know, C round, D round, and like your A or B round, maybe probably your A round. And at the time, that was the that was the sort of model. You had to ask for a whole bunch of capital up front, just like if you, you know, were were building, uh, you know, a business in which you believed that you needed to build a building or something like that. And because at the time there was no cloud, right? Again, this is 2001. 1999, right? This is Amazon didn't even get, AWS didn't get started till 2006 or seven, right? And so if you talk to any VC at that time, they would say, well, the first $50 million that we give to every, every company is, goes directly to Sun Microsystems to buy uh, computers. It goes to Cisco to buy networking. It goes to EMC to buy storage um, and a few hardware companies, right? So there was this, in essence, sort of hardware tax that came with every VC investment. And the VCs hated it because every single company would have to do the same thing. There was no way to like share that first $50 million in investment that went to Sun, EMC, and Cisco. It was just every company was buying from those companies, right? There was this big, essentially hardware tax that went with this. And so what ended up happening, um, a lot of those businesses failed. Uh, a lot of that equipment went out of the secondary market. People were able to buy it really cheap, although there really wasn't any necessary demand for it at the time. But the one really interesting thing that came out of that was all that fiber that got put in the ground didn't go to waste. They weren't going to just dig it up and then throw it away. Some people ended up buying it, right? And a number of companies ended up buying them. Um, you know, one of the companies uh, is a company called Switch out of, out of Las Vegas. Um, Google bought a bunch of it. Um, but in essence, that first round of investment in infrastructure didn't go to waste, but it took a while. It took probably five, six, seven years, maybe close to 10 years before not only did the price of it come down to being really cheap, but people realized that that was the price it needed to be in order to really scale the internet to do some of the amazing things that we think of with the internet today, right? So let's put this in perspective. Like Google didn't IPO until 2004. AWS didn't come out until 2007. And part of the reason for that, um, that timing, if we think about the timing was they wouldn't have started, they wouldn't have been viable before that. But once the internet burst and all of a sudden you had gluts of equipment and technology that had already been paid for, that somebody could buy up for pennies on the dollar, um, and the opportunity for new business models that could be done through broader aggregation came along. So why do I, why do I spend, you know, 15, 16 minutes giving this background story? Well, here's why. So I'm reading this article, this Sequoia article, and the VCs took advantage of the situation that happened after the bust. And they went from, like I said, spending $50 million or giving their, their VC companies $50 million up front plus whatever other money they needed, but basically their hardware tax plus whatever other money they needed to go develop the software for these ideas. Then Amazon comes along, AWS comes along, and you'll hear them tell these stories where they go, well, we went from the first $50 million went to those three companies to now we could do the same thing with $5 million. And maybe that $5 million went to AWS, but that was a 10x change in what that first round of funding needed to look like. And so if we think about it, what happened? We had a whole ton of investment in software companies because that tax had come way down from $50 million to $5 million. 
they could make their first couple rounds much lower, their A rounds, their B rounds much lower. They could experiment with a lot of things, which you couldn't necessarily do before. And so we saw this Cambrian explosion um, along with open source software coming along. Cambrian explosion of VC investments in lots of different things and lots of different ideas that became viable because that infrastructure not only got paid for by somebody else um, and, and, you know, sort of defund, you know, kind of bankrupted and then rebought. Uh, but the investment model changed. Oh, and by the way, uh, the investment rates, and I put a link to this in the show notes, went from uh, about 9%, 8 or 9% at the beginning of the, the bubble. So I remember at the time I bought a house in 1996. I think my interest rate were 7.5%, which to be honest with you, seemed pretty normal at the time. People are now freaking out and losing their mind that they have to rent a house or you know, buy a house at 7%. But anyways, that's about where it was. And then if you look at the chart that I put in the show notes, it slowly went all the way down to zero from, you know, again, the late 90s, early 2000s, about 7 or 8%. Interest rates dropped, continually dropped for the last 20 years uh, down to zero uh, or in by 2020, 2021. And so everything lined up for the VCs. They got to make cheap investments, right? They, they were able to get money very cheap. They were now able to make low cost investments, uh, lower cost in round A, lower cost in round B, where they were able to take larger portions of the companies they were investing in at a much lower investment rate. They were able to make lots and lots of bets. They were able to <clears throat> you know, not necessarily have to make the greatest bets all the time. But um, so anyways, that was the market. And what's really interesting to me and what raised a huge red flag, and I know I'm 20 minutes into this and you're probably like, Brian, shut up and get to the point. Let me get to the point. This is what, this is what grabbed me. So the article says this, consider the following. For every $1 spent on a GPU, roughly $1 needs to be spent on energy costs to run the GPU in a data center. So if NVIDIA sells $50 billion in run rate GPU revenue by the end of the year, by the end of the year, a conservative estimate based on analyst forecast, that implies approximately $100 billion in data center expenditures by customers. The end user of the GPU, for example, Starbucks or X or Tesla or GitHub Copilot or a new startup, needs to earn a margin too. Let's assume they need to earn 50% margin, which is you know about normal in the software industry. This implies that for each year of current GPU CapEx, $200 billion of lifetime revenue would need to be generated by these GPUs to pay back the upfront capital investment. This does not include any margin for the cloud providers. For them to earn a positive return, the total revenue requirement would be even higher. So what is that, what is that, what is that saying? What is Sequoia trying to say? Well, in the simplest terms, Sequoia, this whole article is written around the idea that while there are, uh, let me put them back, let me put them back in the building blocks I had before. Do we have a brand new technology that now has a user interface to it? Yep. So it's no longer the browser. It's now the concept of like ChatGPT or MidJourney or Stable Diffusion, right? I can now create text or code or formulas in ways that I never could before. And there's a simple interface to it. It's not an API. It's not something that, you know, only a data scientist can figure out. It's not a SQL query. It's like a basic interface, you know, create me a picture of Willie Nelson juggling pickles in the forest, right? Uh, and I get these unbelievable three-dimensional pictures. Uh, hey, um, hey, ChatGPT, build me an Ansible playbook that tells me how to deploy uh, Cisco whatever switch with this version of software with this sort of characteristics. 
cool, boom, I don't have to be an Ansible certified engineer anymore. I can just get the code, right? And all sorts of things in between. Hey, um, ChatGPT, build me out a, you know, uh, Excel table that has all this data in here. Or, oh, by the way, write me marketing copy. So the first thing we have is uh, really interesting new technology that seems to have unlimited potential that has a really simple user interface that everybody can get to. Okay, check. Second thing, do we, what do we need to do that? What do we need to make that happen? We need a massive, massive build out of infrastructure in order to be able to do this because all of these things, these queries uh, that are being done across various sort of AI things, you know, whether it's chat GPT or something else, whole bunch of GPUs in the background. Why are we talking about NVIDIA? Because right now there is a, uh, you know, there is a shortage. Now, we're not only are we coming out of the supply chain shortages of 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, the pandemic and so forth, but GPUs aren't necessarily easy to make. Um, you know, there are only a finite number of chip makers. Uh, AMD is trying like crazy to be in this space. Um, NVIDIA has a you know distinct uh, lead in the space. But in order to get there, we're now seeing numbers put out about how much money all of the cloud providers are spending on this, how the secondary cloud, you know, sort of the second tier, third tier cloud providers are spending money on GPUs, how, you know, companies, individual companies are trying to get GPUs and things are being rationed. But we are seeing a massive, massive build out. And that's what essentially Sequoia is saying is they're saying there is going to be, you know, not only a massive build out, but, um, you know, not just the build out, but the cost of doing this is going to be very, very expensive. Right. So they're highlighting that that second building block is in place. And now the third piece, uh, which is in place as well, um, or beginning to become in place, is a million, you know, sort of a million uh, blooms are trying to, to flower. Right. We're seeing a, you know, just a zillion startups try and start up. We're seeing every enterprise company talking about being an AI company and so forth. Right. So we have this you know, massive rush of everybody out there trying to find gold in them hills, if you will. And the thing that's really interesting to me about this whole thing um, and the sort of history repeating themselves is the sort of next paragraph that's in there. This again comes from the Sequoia article. The important question to be asking is how much of this CapEx build out is linked to true end customer demand and how much of it is being built in anticipation of future end customer demand? This is the $200 billion question. Yep, that is the $200 billion question. But the people asking the question are the VCs. Because in essence, if you follow down a little further along, they say this. There is a large opportunity for the startup ecosystem to fill this hole. This hole being the, you know, what they call $125 billion hole between today's CapEx levels, right? The amount of money that people are spending to build out that sort of second building block of this story, right? The massive infrastructure needed and the $200 billion they estimate that needs to be generated in revenues in order to be able to justify this massive thing. And so they say there's a large opportunity for the startup ecosystem to fill this hole. Our goal is to follow the GPUs and find the next generation of startups that leverage AI technology to create real end customer value. We want to invest in these companies. You know, this is, this is an, in essence, you know, it's, it's a it's a commercial for Sequoia and, and any VC could have written this article, but it's a it's a commercial for Sequoia uh, to say, hey, VCs come here. But it should also be a red flag to people because, you know, this is one of the largest VC firms in the world saying 
we don't have, <laughs> we don't have the ideas. We don't have those things. And most importantly, what they're really saying is we don't like that we went from the days of spending $50 million up front on a hardware tax to the days when we spent $5 million on essentially sort of a software getting started package. And now we're moving back to the days when we're going to pay a really, really high hardware tax in order to be able to try and flesh out those innovative startup companies that hopefully will you know, give them the returns that allow them to keep having you know, fancy offices on Sand Hill Road and in Silicon Valley. But you know, if you're sort of a historian of the industry, um, which I feel like I am to a certain extent, maybe that's just because I've been around the industry for a while, but I, I do like to sort of keep track of where things are going. Aaron and I talk a lot about, you know, follow the money. That's one of the good ways to sort of figure out the industry. You know, if you follow the GPUs is, uh, you know, another, the, the new, the new phrasing of, of follow the money, but it does sort of, sort of lend itself to, you know, keeping an eye out as you're, as you're sort of watching the AI market evolve and whether Aaron and I are talking about it, or you're listening to one of the other 47 podcasts that are talking about it, at least the framework, I'm not making any predictions, but at least the framework for what is going on today um, has a lot of rhyme with what we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s. We have the first building block, super interesting new technology that now has a bunch of really interesting interfaces that are available to everybody. At least it seems that way. Second thing is this massive demand to build out the infrastructure to be able to you know, fulfill the promise of whatever idea people might have. And that in order to build those sort of new infrastructures and super highways, um, there are you know there are people that are investing billions and billions of dollars to do that. Sometimes at a high premium, trying to build themselves a moat to do that. And the third thing is a bunch of companies that that think they are going to figure this out, whether or not they fully have a business model to figure it out, um, but they're going to try and be the first ones to get there. And we'll see. We'll see if you know, we go through a similar type of thing to what we saw from, um, you know, the first sort of dot-com, um, you know, huge run-up in which, yes, there were some interesting ideas that came along. There was a lot of new thinking that happened. Um, yes, there was massive build-outs that actually happened. Um, will we see the downside of it? Who knows? Will, you know, will we see a crash in the market because the business models for those things don't work out at the prices of GPUs today? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, will we see at some point, if it does crash, somebody able to buy it up for pennies on the dollar and become, um, you know, create new business models? Maybe. Um, but I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to follow is, you know, keep an eye on all of these companies that are trying to, you know, build, build or deliver some sort of AI driven service because we know the ability to, to deliver those really cool things um, is you know, multiple, multiple orders of magnitude more complicated than it was to deliver those first web pages um, or just deliver regular old applications these days, right? In order to get back, uh, you know, a chat GPT response is computationally expensive. Um, so anyways, just something to kind of keep an eye on, um, not making any predictions, just sort of highlighting that um, there's a lot of similarities going on here. Um, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, VCs, don't seem to talk, you know, don't tend to talk a lot publicly just about, hey, I just feel like talking about stuff. They like to put things out there again when they like to crow about themselves being the smartest people in the room, having made tons and tons of money. 
And then they also like to go out there and put some articles out there when they're like, hey, the world has conspired against me. <laughs> the world no longer looks like the model I had before. What are we going to do about it? Not what are they going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And those are usually somewhat of a cry for help um, in that they don't really know what's going on next. So keep an eye on this space. Um, I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Um, the economics of it are going to be fascinating. Uh, but yeah, this article, as I was reading through it, it just gave me, uh, you know, 1990, 2000 vibes and, and sort of living through, you know, people with huge ambitions and, uh, you know, it took them a little longer than, than they expected to be able to realize all those ambitions. So anyways, kind of a longer show today. Um, I, I walked the dog many times before kind of, uh, getting to some, a lot, some of these things, but it, it all just sort of, you know, started falling into place in terms of going, boy, I think I've seen this movie before. I'm hoping We've learned some from the movie, you know, from the movie before, because um, the ride after 2000, 2001 was kind of bumpy. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. So um, anyways, uh, sometimes we have a, an, an ability to learn and, and not make the same mistakes twice. And sometimes we repeat ourselves. So anyways, keep an eye out for it. Um, but definitely, you know, uh, this is an area to sort of dig into, again, whether or not you are really into AI or not, because we have a tendency in our industry that whatever the dominant sort of discussion is at the time, the dominant theme at the time, um, it tends to become uh, important to everybody, whether or not they want it to be important to them or not, um, either because of where investment comes from, where market sentiment comes from, where media coverage goes to. Um, so just keep an eye on this stuff, because one way or the other, um, you know, this this massive build out that we're seeing around the potential of AI, which again may have really, really greater potential than maybe even, you know, the original internet did. We'll see Not the original internet, but sort of the 2000 era internet did. We'll see. Um, but this is going to be a really interesting time to figure out if people can be creative and become, you know, thinkers of new business models, thinkers of, you know, new ways to do things in, in more efficient ways than maybe we're even doing them right now. So Definitely keep your eyes open to this. Um, I, I think it's going to have an impact kind of on the on the broader industry. Um, so it, it's going to have impact to to probably most of us or all of us or some of us, you know, somewhere in that somewhere somewhere in that Venn diagram. Anyways, thanks for listening. If you're still listening at this point, um, as always, thanks to everybody for uh, telling a friend, telling us people about the show. Uh, we continue to see new people pop up. We're seeing. All sorts of questions coming in. We really appreciate it. We've been getting some really nice feedback uh, from various people. Um, so appreciate all that. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up, um, wrap up another Sunday perspective. Thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 